Hello again, and welcome to the fifth episode of Sierra Athletics Media Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly, along with Francis C. Harris and Charles F. Harris Jr., my co-hosts. Good to see you again. Good, Good afternoon, afternoon, Calvin. Good to see you, Calvin. Good to see you. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's baseball season. Uh, so you know what? We're going we're gonna to spend this uh, podcast talking about some of the pioneers of black baseball. And, uh, and I want to remind you once again, all of this, the topics that you hear us discussed on the Sierra Athletics Media Podcast are all based on the information and data in the pictorial history of the African-American athlete, a work in progress and comprehensive uh, history of the African-American ha- athlete uh, put together by my co-host, the Brothers Harris. So uh, this show is no different. This show, we're going to look at uh, real, really principally three critical people, but really uh, as an introduction as, two, uh, as three people who were sort of the pioneers of black baseball around the turn of the century. And those people are Andrew Rube Foster, Frank Leland, and the great Saul White. So we're going to start out here, though, um, by uh, you know asking Francis to give us a little history on who Andrew Rube Foster is, um, a Hall of Fame pitcher from the Negro League era. Yes, and a Hall of Fame pitcher, and a Hall of Fame baseball executive, mm. and a Hall of Fame manager. Uh, basically, I would call him the father of black baseball because mm-hmm. he was a man, uh, well, first he started off, he was born in Lake Grange, Texas in 1879. Um, some people give his birth city as Calvert, Texas. Mm-hmm. But uh, his World War One uh, application uh, registration form says Lake Grange, Texas. And uh, he's Andrew Rube Foster Jr. His father, Andrew Rube Foster Sr., was um, an, uh, a minister in the AME um, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so he was one of six children, uh, four who survived uh, childbirth. And uh, he began pitching, I guess, at a young age. Well, his his parents, by the time he was 12 years old, both of his parents had died. Mm. So uh, basically, he moved to Waco, Texas, uh, and that's where to follow his dream as to become a, a, a pitcher. And um, he dropped out of school in the eighth grade. So uh, he was pretty big for uh, his age, and about six foot four inches tall and I guess about 200 pounds and he started pitching for the um, Austin uh, Texas Reds but he uh, that's around 1897 but uh, um, he gained a reputation first reputation uh, pitching for the Waco Texas Yellow Jackets and um, they had another pitcher on the team by the name of Saul Chu and those two made their names. I mean, they were barnstorming. The uh, Waco, Texas, Yellow Jacks were barnstorming all through the South and uh, the Southwest. And around 1901 is when he went to Chicago and started playing for the Chicago Union Giants. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Union Giants were owned by uh, Frank Leland. Frank Leland had attended uh, Fisk University in Nashville, Texas. Shout out to HBCUs, <laughs> <laughs> as we always do on this show. <laughs> so uh, uh, Frank Leland signed him to a $40 a month and uh, I guess 15 cents a day meal money, which mm-hmm. uh, I 
guess 15 cents could probably buy, buy, buy a, like, a lot back in the day yeah. back in the day <laughs> and uh but he was 21 Ruth Foster was 21 years old at the time and Frank Leland was like a mentor and a, a tutor uh for him in the terms of not only uh strategy in terms of baseball, but I guess he learned about uh, operating a, 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 a mm-hmm. baseball team, mm-hmm. which is going to come in very handy yeah, yeah. as we get when we get further into our story. Yeah, I guess booking and you <laughs> yes. know the stadium and what have you. Because as you mentioned, he was a he was a a a brilliant manager and yes. executive as well. Yeah, I mean he was ahead of his time. I mm-hmm. mean he was, uh, but you know later on he became one of the top booking agents. Mm-hmm. But, um, so it was around that spring that uh, he went to uh, Ruth Foster, went to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he pitched uh, spring training for the Philadelphia Athletics. And for anybody who knows, the Athletics were managed by legendary Connie Mack. Yes, and they were the top <clears throat> one of the top American League teams at the time. So he, um, when he pitched um, a five-two victory during spring training against. Um, uh, Rube Waddell, who was a Hall of Fame pitcher, mm-hmm. a pitcher of the athletics. That's how he got his nickname, Rube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems as those days, if you beat somebody with a big nickname, <laughs> then you got his nickname, yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, in the um, uh, spring of, ni- by this time, 1903, he became well-known on the um, circuit. And um, that's when New York uh, Giants manager, John McGraw, uh, hired him in spring training mm-hmm. to... Um, Teach the screwball to Christian Mathewson and John McGinty and Leon Ames. They were the top pitchers mm-hmm. for the Philadelphia Athletics at that time. Um, and so, I know you mentioned to me that this was disputed, but yeah, but, but there's yeah. a, there's a lot of support well, for the, the fact well, that this well, is the thing about it is, true story. John John Hallway wrote a book uh, called Great Voices mm-hmm. of the Negro Leagues, and this book came out like maybe in the mid 1970s, late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And Dave Malachu, uh since that time. Uh, he was a Hall of Fame second baseman for the Chicago American Giants, who um, Ruth Foster managed the team. But uh, Malarcher said that this is true. That mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. mean, it was it was a known fact that you know, uh, I don't think they called it the school ball at that particular time. Mm-hmm. But the pitch was so effective, and you know, I mean, by this time, Ruth Foster was pitching against. At least in spring training, a lot of major league teams, mm-hmm. and so um, who play, uh, they held their spring training in Texas uh, and down south because you know they didn't start having major league teams didn't start having spring training in places like Arizona until Bill Vec, the owner uh-huh. of the um, Cleveland Indians, got so fed up with the racism in Florida that you know, and I guess. By the time that he had signed Larry Doby, uh, that and Satya Page and what have you, that mm-hmm. he just, you know, because the players, they couldn't stay in in places like in Florida, sure. where there was segregation, they couldn't stay in um, the same hotels or rooming houses. Then you know, mm-hmm. so I mean, when the Dodgers had their uh, spring training at Daytona Beach, Jackie Robinson stayed in yeah. Royal Cabanella. So. Bill Vec was against this, and so he was the one that started uh, um, going out uh, to Arizona. He was mm-hmm. the first team. So prior to that time, everybody, all the major league teams either were in Texas or Florida mm-hmm. for spring training. So Rube Forster pitched against a lot of the major, you know, they they didn't disclose this. This wasn't written up mm-hmm. in the press. I mean, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't do that, so... 
Well, let me jump in here because what because what we're talking about now is in some ways this is this is a, a really pioneering period in black baseball. This is really before the launch of the Negro National League, which was the first one, uh, and before there was a consolidated black uh, uh, professional major league. But there was still professional uh, black baseball going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had been since the, at least the eight, the, well, the, probably right after the Civil War, where mm-hmm. as baseball moved around the country, but certainly um, in by the 1880s. So maybe you can mention some of the teams that were out there. Well, you had the Cuban Giants mm-hmm. who started at a hotel out here in Long Island, mm-hmm. and a, a waiters and what have you, paid Finch, Page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh right, mm-hmm. sure. And, said, mm-hmm. and we were discussing that they used a lot of these teams used like the Brooklyn Royal Giants. I mean, the Brooklyn Royal Giants were owned by a man by the name of John Connors. Mm-hmm. John Connors is from uh, my father's hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia, initially, mm-hmm. and uh, he um, operated a lot of places in Harlem, a lot of speakeasies, and a lot of clubs. And so he was the initial owner of the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and it's interesting that when uh, Rube Foster became a um, manager and owner of uh, the Chicago American Giants, so uh, one of the people that uh, he w- spoke very highly of was John Connors, because I think John Connors mm-hmm. put a lot of money into the Brooklyn Royal Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't he own a restaurant yeah, or something? He a, yeah, and mm-hmm. he owned a restaurant. He died at, at like thirty-five, and. Hmm. And uh, Jack Johnson bought the restaurant mm. up in Harlem. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, a lot of these teams were called Giants, and that had to do with the fact that the success of the New York Giants mm. were owned by managed by mm. John McGraw. So uh, we should also mention like to the early major league players of the nineteenth century. Yeah. So that would be what Fleetwood Walker. Well, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker is one of the early players. Robert Johnson. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Weldy Walker. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yeah, mm-hmm. his brother, that's his brother. His mm-hmm. brother. Yeah. I mean, but these people also played. They uh, baseball was uh, played on the college level, and yes. a lot of mm-hmm. the black colleges, historically black colleges, yes. universities, Howard University. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Morehouse, mm-hmm. Morris Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Wilberforce. A lot of these uh, schools had baseball and were playing baseball in the 1890s, mm-hmm. and they had baseball teams. And so that's yes. and we, then, and we've I'm, lamented here on the uh, well, maybe not on the show, but I've done it many times. Yes. That, that uh, Howard dropped baseball. I think it was somewhere in the 1980s. Yeah, I in remember seeing yeah, it. Well, it was you know, yeah. broke my heart. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing baseball for over 100 years. Yeah, and and so. I mean, that's uh, as far as the uh, historically black colleges and universities mm-hmm. goes, that's where it started. But then you had uh, James Gregory playing at Amherst. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Williams Clarence Matthews at Harvard. Uh, mm-hmm. You had all of the, well, well uh, I say James Gregory, not only did he play at Amherst, he played at Yale Divinity School. Mm-hmm. You know, so these people uh, were pl- at a lot of the major colleges on the, uh, in, especially in New England, mm-hmm. where, where black people were playing black. They had black players on these teams, mm-hmm. and this was like the late eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds. So ba- baseball was a 
very well. It's the American scam. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, even you know, even Americans that maybe were getting a raw deal, they still like they, <laughs> they still, still wanted to play baseball. They still play baseball. You know. Um, yeah. Um, uh, one of the other things, um, and we're about to get into that in, in terms of uh, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. part of the story. Uh, Philadelphia was kind of a hotbed well, for black Pennsylvania, baseball. Pennsylvania was mm-hmm. a hotbed because not only that uh, 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 they established um, baseball in, in, in Philadelphia, but in Darby, Pennsylvania, Ed Bolden was there, and he was one of the people that started. But 1904, after after Rube uh, pitched for not only the Chicago Union Giants, he pitched for the Cuban ex-Giants, he joined uh, the Philadelphia Giants in 1904. And so I'll let my brother tell you a little bit about that. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, uh, this is actually with the part where we pick up a little bit more on Saul White. Right. Uh, well, this is the time when Ruth Foster uh, joined the Philadelphia Giants. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a little history about the Philadelphia Giants. They were mm-hmm. one of the uh, premier African-American baseball, the first premier African-American baseball team of the 20th century. And uh, the team was formed and owned in 1902 by uh, Walter H. Schechter, uh, uh, Hall of, who was a sports writer, and Hall of Fame infielder King Solomon Saul White. Um, I don't want to go into total detail about uh, Saul White, but because um, that's for another episode. But he was one of the first to write about the African. He wrote the first documented history on the African American athlete entitled "The History of Colored Baseball." Um, that was around 1902, I believe. Mm-hmm. And also another key figure who uh, was part of the ownership of the Philadelphia Giants was Harry Smith, who was a sports editor of the Philadelphia Tribune, which was the city's African-American newspaper, Philadelphia's African-American newspaper. Um, uh, H. Walter Schechter arranged mm-hmm. for the team to play their home games in Columbus Park, which was actually the home field of the Philadelphia Athletics, of course, mm-hmm. who uh, was managed by Connie Mack. Uh, and it was located on 29th Street and Columbia Avenue in the North Philadelphia section. Uh, when the athletics played their road games, the Philadelphia Giants were able to play their uh, home and games there. It, I just want to jump in for a second. I mean, this is an actual pattern that we'll see throughout. As mm-hmm. we get further on into the story of, uh, of black baseball, this was a, a business arrangement that mm-hmm. you saw in many major league, mm-hmm. in white major league cities with the uh you know the 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 local black teams as well exactly. um, they played in these major league teams and they got big crowds to come out too well exactly. well i mean and not that to cut you off but but, but you being from washington yeah, you have to absolutely. know uh, about the grays and the senators absolutely right. and uh, in fact there's a whole book on that mm-hmm. um God, what is that called oh it's a, it's it's a really fabulous book i'm going to have to look this up mm-hmm. and uh while you're talking, <laughs> or if I can get my internet connection, because there's a great book that's all about the connection between uh, the Homestead Grades and mm-hmm. the Washington Senators, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the family that owned the Washington Senators. The Clark Griffiths. Yes, the Griffiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even as a kid, I remember because I grew up on Harvard Street in Washington mm-hmm, D.C., right. very near Griffiths, Griffiths mm-hmm. uh, Stadium, uh, which is the, actually where Howard University Hospital mm-hmm. is right mm-hmm. now. Correct. And actually, as a as a Cub Scout uh, in the annual. Cub Scout Parade in, in D.C. every year. You D.C. residents will know what I mean. When I was a kid, the uh, school patrol, we used to have a, have a um, we were part of the parade and we'd build a float and we pushed that thing, which was a big locomotive, onto the warning track 
around Griffith Stadium. I never went to see a game, uh-huh. but I, I, I was on the warning track of Griffith Stadium. I can't even remember when this was. Must have been. This must have been in. Uh, the early '60s, sometime, okay. or maybe the late '50s, something. Okay. You know. Anyway, when was, too much when, about me. Uh, <laughs> going on, when when was Griffin Stadium demolished to make way for the hospital? It wasn't until it wasn't until the '70s. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. until the '70s. Yeah, was, you know, right before we yeah. moved down there. Oh, yeah, it had to be '69. But the Harmon Killebrew Washington Senators yeah. left DC right. in '59 or '60. I think it was late. Yeah, that, no, no, like no, that. because they went to Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, they, they left they D.C. for Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, uh, and we didn't get the new the Bob Short Washington until, Senators until, until, until they, 1962. Yeah, and then they built the RFK right after that. After right that, that. Okay. yeah, absolutely. So this is a sort of random history <laughs> <laughs> of Washington yeah, D.C. Yeah, well, Washington baseball. Okay. So I cut you off, but go well, go, go right. right please go right back. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, well, in the team's first season with um, Saul White, along with. Um, Rube Foster uh, were made up of this team. Saul White played shortstop in addition to managing the team also. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of uh, known players also on this team. Uh, one, in, one in particular was uh, Hall of Fame second baseman Frank Grant. Frank Grant mm-hmm. just got into the Hall of Fame around 2006. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, catcher Clarence Williams and pitcher John Nelson. So um, a little history about the 1902 season. Um, they had a record of 81 wins, uh, 43 losses, and two ties. Um, they were unable to play the Cuban ex-Giants for the newly formed Negro League Championship after uh, issues, uh, several challenging issues. But um, they did play the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, which is remarkable, yeah, uh, no. who were in the American mm-hmm. League champion at the time in a two-game exhibition. Um, the Athletics, of course, won both of those games uh, one was by the score of eight to three, and the other one was the score of thirteen to four. So, um, in 1903, Saul White signed pitcher outfielder Harry Green River Buckner, uh, third baseman and catcher William Binga, uh, catcher Robert Fortis, uh, shortstop second baseman, third baseman William Bill Monroe, uh, second baseman left fielder John W. Patterson. And after they were defeated in the Color World Series by the Cuban ex-Giants, Rube Foster, with Rube Foster pitching, he joined the Philadelphia Giants the following season. So in the 1904 season, in addition to uh, uh, Rube Foster, they had Hall of Fame outfielder Peter uh, Hill, who was inducted in 2006 into the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, Charles Charlie Grant, uh, who was an Indian, of course, uh, who played mm-hmm. second base, uh, Grant Holman Johnson, uh, who incidentally formed the Page Fence Johnson and wrote the, uh, in Saul White's book, The Art and Science of Hitting. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, uh, Hall of Famer shortstop John Henry Lloyd was on this team as well. Uh, Mike Moore, who was a center fielder in 1905, and catcher Bruce Petway in 1907. Spot Will Pose, who was an outfielder in 1909, and Cannonball Dick Redding, who a lot of baseball historians know about because of his pitching exploits in 1911. And I just, I just, wanna, I just wanna jump in and mention that, you know, the, the, the names that you'd hear are some of the most bel- well-known names in, in uh, African-American, the history of African-American baseball. I mean, right. uh, 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 Pop, John Henry Lloyd, I mean, these are really, really some of the most stellar names exactly. in the game. So, yeah, so go on. Okay, so, uh, 
The Philadelphia Giants uh, actually moved to the Columbia Park in 1904 to a new home field located on Broad Street, if everybody knows where Broad Street is, if you're a Philadelphian, and Jackson Avenue. Um, and the Color World Series that season, the Philadelphia Giants defeated the Cuban ex-Giants in a three-game series, two games to one. And that season, uh, Ruth Foster was 20, had a record of 20 wins and six losses, uh, incidentally with two no-hitters. Uh, and he won two games in the Color World Series while batting uh, 400. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Francis, who's going to talk about uh, Ruth Force's uh, latter pitching career as well. Well, he, he at about 1906, um, he was instrumental. Well, the Philadelphia Giants were instrumental mm -hmm. in the forming of the International League of uh, Independent Professional Ballplayers. And this league was comprised of um, all black and all white teams in the Philadelphia and uh, Wilmington, Delaware area. And uh, the Giants finished with a 108 and um, 31 and six record. And uh, by this time, it was um, Ruth Forster was um, upset with what he was getting. From, <laughs> they they call it, it professional baseball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he was getting from the Philadelphia Giants uh, team executives. So um, even though uh, I, I think it's 1907 is when he had, um, um, when Saul Wright had uh, um, published the official baseball guide, uh, the history of, um, called it baseball, and it's interested, interesting to note that it was edited by H. Walter Schechter, and Ruth Forster had written uh, an essay in there talking about how to pitch, but he, uh, that fall he left, um, uh, the Philadelphia Giants. Frank Leland uh, used his influence to bring him back to Chicago. And uh, I think it was uh, David Wyatt, who had um, been a pitcher in early black baseball, but uh, he was a sports writer for the Chicago Defender, the black newspaper, and then the Indianapolis uh, Freeman. And uh, that's how Leland got, um, even though Leland knew uh, Ruth Forster, he got Dave Wyatt to persuade uh, Forster to come back, and then that's when um, Frank Leland, had, Frank Leland had lost the name Chicago mm -hmm. Union Giants, and and so he started a whole new ball club. Um, it was basically you know mm -hmm. the Chicago Union Giants, but now he called it the Leland Giants. So I guess he respected uh, Rube so much that he offered Rube a player manager position with the club and that started a, a, a whole era of the Leland Giants being one of the uh, top teams in black baseball at that time and you know um, Ruth Foster was able to get a lot of the teammates from the um, Philadelphia Giants to join him uh, people like Grant Homer Johnson and Pete Hill and uh, catcher um, Pete Booker and Bill Monroe and just the whole slew of the former players mm -hmm. uh, came with him, and um, they played their home games on the south side of Chicago, which was uh, it still probably is now was a, a, a African American community, mm -hmm. and they played at all, a place called Auburn Ballpark, which is on 79th Street and Winworth Avenue. And uh, you know what I find interesting, if I could just jump in for a second, mm -hmm. is that part of the league, Cap Anson had a team. Idea, yeah. Who's n n notorious in the history well, the of baseball? Well, the thing is, uh, you know, I mean, I I I, I have a funny uh, a mixture. I, first of all, there's a picture in the pictorial history of Ruth Foster with Pat, with Cap Anson, 
And I have a, a mixed emotion with Cap, Cap has because Saul White always has written articles and, and newspapers later on. They said, you know, don't blame uh, the uh, uh, well, because Moses Whitwell Walker was the last uh, African American to play mm-hmm. Major League Baseball, and until Jackie Robinson came along. Mm-hmm. And because uh, black players were banned by were the banned. National Association yeah, of Baseball yeah, Players yeah. sometime in the 19th century, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, 1889. No, 18, yeah, yeah. So, so, but, but, someone has a, 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 a to note. He says you cannot blame Cap Anson for the banning of African American players. Mm-hmm. One man can't do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And he said it, it's it's unfair. It, Cap and also Cap Anson was a notorious racist while he played. But when he had teams that bossed them, they played against black teams. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, because he most most famously, and there's even a book entitled this, yeah. Get That Nigga Off the Field, yeah. mm-hmm. that he was the, to supposedly have said this. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, though I don't forget the exact uh, well, I think instance Argos, situation. Argos Jr. wrote that. Yeah, book. is that the book I'm talking about? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I mean, and, I, and I'm inclined to... Believe that. I mean, I believe mm-hmm. Cap Anson. Well, well, he was notorious as a player, mm-hmm. you know, to be a racist. But I don't think you can say from eight, 1889 sure. to 1940s, that Cap Anson is responsible sure. for you know keeping black players all that particular time for, sure. for close to forty or fifty years. Sure, you know. <laughs> but he, and I guess I mean, in some ways he's become the sim- well, symbol, yeah, of course, of what is of a sy- basically systematic white well, supremacy. It, 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 right. yeah. it, it, you can say the same. The same thing about Eddie Stanky. Sure. I mean, Eddie Stanky mm-hmm. played for the Dodgers, mm-hmm. and yeah, Eddie Stanky, and he was notorious. He was notorious, and he didn't yeah. want Jackie Robinson. I mean, yeah. it's the famous uh, 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 spring training thing where uh, Tom when Leo DeRocha called Eddie Stanky and a couple of people down to the kitchen of the hotel, saying this guy is going to play, and he's not. He only that's going to only be this guy. He's talking yeah. about Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of these guys yeah. coming. Yeah, you know, so whether or your not, job. yeah, so whether or not you have. <laughs> this opinion yeah. about this that he's not going to be the only guy there's going to be other sure. guys coming after him you know so I mean I think that in order for something like that you have to have the owners I mean John sure. McCall wanted to you mean you know, my brother was talking about uh, Charles Grant mm-hmm. and you know Charles Grant wasn't an Indian but what happened was they to get they mm-hmm. tried to say he was Indian he wasn't black to try to get him, he wanted to sign sure. Charles. Uh, he wanted to sign Charlie Grant, John McGraw, to play with the Giants. So that's what he said. This is a guy's in black. He's an Indian. Sure. Right? You know. So yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, some of that had to do with even this name of the Cuban. Although certainly, yes. you know, a lot of these teams were named after, uh, were, were named in honor of the, the Giants because right. they were so popular. Yeah. Right. But you know, Cuban kind of became the sort of. Disguise this beard that they weren't black. Yeah, that yeah. they, you know, if they were from the Caribbean, yeah, then like they like were, weren't black. Yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> so no, you I can mean, sidestep. That, yeah. You know, uh, so yeah. So this is what American racism does yeah, to people. You know, <laughs> that, I mean, that, that they the, can make it. They can yeah. rationalize. 
you know, the, yeah, they're not black. The most human. awful things they yeah. can rationalize. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what we're, what we're really outlining here is just kind of the landscape of, of American baseball mm-hmm. and black baseball's impact on it mm-hmm. as we head into the 1920s, mm-hmm. when there's going to be a complete revolution in, in uh, black people playing baseball mm-hmm. based around Rube Foster and yes. his vision uh, as an owner, as a, an executive, and as a tactician, and and as a coach. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as a uh, so we've got a lot more coming up mm-hmm. about, uh, really, the father of black baseball mm-hmm. uh, and his impact on the game. Everything from how it's played mm-hmm. to the business side of it. Right. Uh, and, and this is more the period, I think, that most casual fans understand and mm-hmm. know about African baseball. We're talking about teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, mm-hmm. the Chicago American Giants that that Rube Foster started. The Homestead Grays uh, mm-hmm. that we were talking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I believe there what was there seven or eight teams mm-hmm. that that generally are considered you know the Newark uh, Eagles That's right. that are kind of considered uh, the Detroit Stars. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah what, Detroit Stars, Baltimore League Giants. Yes, 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 and of course the Black Yankees. Yes, yes. So we're going to be talking about uh, the 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 launch of the Negro National League. The a bigger, uh, much more about Saul White mm-hmm. and his historic contributions. And a whole lot of other things uh, in our next episode mm-hmm. about uh, at, um, the Negro Leagues and the rise of, of black baseball in this country. So don't forget to tune in again. Thanks again to my co-host, uh, the Thank Brothers you. Harris. Thank and you. we'll see you on the next episode of, uh, of Sierra Athletics, Sierra Media Athletics Podcast. <laughs> we got it. Hello again, and welcome to the fifth episode of Sierra Athletics Media Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, along with Francis C. Harris and Charles F. Harris Jr., my co-hosts. Good to see you again. Good, Good afternoon, afternoon, Calvin. Good to see you, Calvin. Good to see you. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's baseball season, uh, so you know what? We're going we're gonna to spend this uh, podcast talking about some of the pioneers of black baseball. And uh, and I want to remind you once again, all of this, the topics that you hear us discussed on the Sierra Athletics Media Podcast are all based on the information and data in the pictorial history of the African-American athlete, a work in progress and comprehensive uh, history of the African-American ha- athlete uh, put together by my co-hosts, the Brothers Harris. So uh, this show is no different. This show, we're going to look at uh, really principally three critical people, but really uh, as an introduction as two, as three people who were sort of the pioneers of black baseball around the turn of the century. And those people are Andrew Rube Foster, Frank Leland, and the great Saul White. So we're going to start out here, though, um, by uh, you know asking Francis to give us a little history on who Andrew Rube Foster is um, a Hall of Fame pitcher from the Negro League era. Yes, and a Hall of Fame pitcher, and a Hall of Fame baseball executive, mm. and a Hall of Fame manager. Uh, basically, I would call him the father of black baseball because mm-hmm. he was a man, uh, well, first he started off 
He was born in LaGrange, Texas in 1879. Um, some people give his birth city as Calvert, Texas. Mm -hmm. But uh, his World War I uh, application uh, registration form says LaGrange, Texas. And uh, he's Andrew Rue Foster Jr. His father, Andrew Rue Foster Sr., was um, an, uh, a minister in the AME um, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so he was one of six children, uh, four who survived uh, childbirth. And uh, he began pitching, I guess, at a young age. Well, his, his parents, by the time he was 12 years old, both of his parents had died. Mm. So uh, basically, he moved to Waco, Texas, uh, and that's where to follow his dream as to become a, a, a pitcher. And... Um, he dropped out of school in the eighth grade, so uh, he was pretty big for uh, his age, and about six foot four inches tall, and I guess about two hundred pounds. And he started pitching for the um, Austin uh, Texas Reds, but he uh, that's around eighteen ninety seven. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, <clears throat> he gained the reputation, first reputation, uh, pitching for the Waco Texas Yellow Jackets. And um, they had another pitcher on the team by the name of Saul Chu. And those two made their names. I mean, they were barnstorming. The uh, Waco, Texas, Yellow Jacks were barnstorming all through the South and uh, the Southwest. And around 1901 is when he went to Chicago and started playing for the Chicago Union Giants. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Union Giants were owned by uh, Frank Leland. And Frank Leland had attended uh, Fisk University in Nashville, Texas. Shout out to HBCUs, <laughs> <laughs> as we always do on this show. <laughs> so uh, uh, Frank Leland signed him to a $40 a month and uh, I guess 15 cents a day meal money, which mm -hmm. uh, I guess 15 cents could probably buy by, by a, a lot. <laughs> back in the day, yeah. Back in the day. <laughs> and, uh, but he was 21, Ruth Foster was 21 years old at the time, and Frank Leland was like a mentor and a, a tutor uh, for him in terms of not only uh, strategy, in terms of baseball, but I guess he learned about uh, operating a, 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 a mm -hmm. baseball team. Mm -hmm. Which is going to come in very handy yeah, yeah. as we get when we get further into our story. Yeah, I guess booking and you <laughs> yes. know, the stadium and what have you. Because as you mentioned, he was a he was a a a brilliant manager and yes. executive as well. Yeah, I mean he was ahead of his time. I mm -hmm. mean he was, uh, but you know later on he became one of the top booking agents. Mm -hmm. but, um, so it was around that spring that uh, he went to uh, Ruth Foster went to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he pitched. Uh, Spring training for the Philadelphia Athletics, and for anybody who knows, the Athletics were managed by legendary Connie Mack. Yes, and they were the top, <clears throat> one of the top American League teams at the time. So, he um, when he pitched um, a five-two victory during spring training against um, uh, Rube Waddell, who was a Hall of Fame pitcher, mm -hmm. the pitcher of the Athletics. That's how he got his nickname. Rube. Yeah. Rube. Seems as those days, if you beat somebody with a big nickname, <laughs> then you got his nickname yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in the um, uh, spring of, by this time, 1903, he became well known on the um, circuit. And um, that's when New York uh, Giants manager John McGraw uh, hired him in spring training mm -hmm. to um, teach the screwball to Christy Mathewson and John McGinty and Leon Ames. They were the top pitchers 
mm-hmm. for the Philadelphia Athletics at that time. Um, and so, I know you mentioned to me that this was disputed, but yeah, but, but there's yeah. a, there's a lot of support well, for the, the fact well, that this well, is the thing about it is, true story. John, John Hallway wrote a book uh, called Great Voices mm-hmm. of the Negro Leagues, and this book came out like maybe in the mid-1970s, late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And Dave Malachu, uh since that time, uh, he was a Hall of Fame second baseman for the Chicago American Giants, who um, Ruth Foster managed the team. But uh, Malarcha said that this is true, that, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. mean, it was, it was a known fact that, you know, uh, I don't think they called it the school ball at that particular time, mm-hmm. but the pitch was so effective, and, you know, I mean, by this time, Ruth Foster was pitching against at least in spring training, a lot of major league teams, mm-hmm. and so um, who play, uh, they held their spring training in Texas uh, and down south because you know they didn't start having major league teams didn't start having spring training in places like Arizona until Bill Vec, the owner uh-huh. of the um, Cleveland Indians, got so fed up with the racism in Florida. That you know, and I guess by the time that he had signed Larry Doby, uh, that in Satcher Page and what have you, that mm-hmm. he just you know because the players they couldn't stay in in places like in Florida sure. where there was segregation, they couldn't stay in um, the same hotels or rooming houses. Then you know, mm-hmm. so I mean, when the Dodgers had this uh, spring training at Daytona Beach, Jackie Robinson stayed in yeah. Campanella. So. Bill Vec was against this, and so he was the one that started uh, um, going out uh, to Arizona. He was mm-hmm. the first team. So prior to that time, everybody, all the major league teams either were in Texas or Florida mm-hmm. for spring training. So Ruth Forster pitched against a lot of the major, you know, they they didn't disclose this. This wasn't written up in mm-hmm. the press. I mean, you know, they couldn't they couldn't do that. So, Well, let me jump in here because what, because what we're talking about now is in some ways this is this is a, a really pioneering period in black baseball this is really before the launch of the negro national league which was the first one uh, and before there was a consolidated black uh, uh, professional major league but there was still professional uh, black baseball going on, uh, and it had been since the, at least the eight. The, well, the, probably right after the Civil War, where mm-hmm. as baseball moved around the country, but certainly um, in by the eighteen eighties. So maybe you can mention some of the teams that were out there. Well, you had the Cuban Giants mm-hmm. who started at a hotel out here in Long Island, mm-hmm. and of, of waiters and what have you, paid Finch, page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh right, mm-hmm. sure. And, said, mm-hmm. and we were discussing that they used a lot of these teams used like the Brooklyn Royal Giants. I mean, the Brooklyn Royal Giants were owned by a man by the name of John Connors. Mm-hmm. John Connors is from uh, my father's hometown of Portsmouth, Virginia, initially, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he um, operated a lot of places in Harlem, a lot of speakeasies, and a lot of clubs. And so he was the initial owner of the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and it's interesting that when uh, Ruth Foster became a um, manager and an owner of uh, the Chicago American Giants, so uh, one of the people that uh, he w- spoke very highly of was John Connors, because I think John Connors mm-hmm. put a lot of money into the Brooklyn Royal Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't he own a restaurant yeah, or something? He a, yeah, and mm-hmm. he owned the restaurant. He died at, at like thirty-five, and. Hmm. And uh, Jack Johnson bought the restaurant mm. up in Harlem. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
But uh, a lot of these teams were called Giants, and that had to do with the fact that the success of the New York Giants mm. were owned by and managed by mm. John McGraw. So uh, we should also mention like to the early major league players of the 19th century. Yeah. So that would be what Fleetwood Walker. Well, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker is one of the early players. Robert Johnson. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Weldy Walker. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. his brother. It's his brother. His mm-hmm. brother. Yeah. I mean, but these people also played. They uh, baseball was uh, played on the college level. And yes. a lot of mm-hmm. the black colleges, historically black colleges yes. and universities, Howard University, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Morehouse, mm-hmm. Morris Brown, mm-hmm. uh, Wilberforce, a lot of these uh, schools had baseball and were playing baseball in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And they had baseball teams. And so that's yes. what... And we, then, and we've I'm, lamented here on the... Uh, well, maybe not on the show, but I've done it many times. Yes. That, that, uh, Howard dropped baseball, I think it was somewhere in the 1980s. Yeah, I remember seeing yeah, it. It well, was you know, yeah. broke my heart. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing baseball for over 100 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, that's uh, as far as the historically black colleges and universities mm-hmm. goes, that's where it started. But then you had uh, James Gregory playing at Amherst. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Williams Clarence Matthews. At Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. you had all of the well, well, uh, I say James Gregory. Not only did he play at Amherst, he played at Yale Divinity School. Mm-hmm. You know, so these people uh, were play- at a lot of the major colleges on the, uh, in, especially in New England, mm-hmm. where, where black people were playing. Black, they had black players on these teams, mm-hmm. and this was like the late eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds. So ba- baseball was a very, well, it's the American scam. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, even you know, even Americans that maybe were getting a raw deal, they still like they, they still, still wanted to play baseball. They still play baseball, you know. Um, yeah. Um, uh, one of the other things, um, and we're about to get into that in in terms of uh, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. part of the story. Uh, Philadelphia was kind of a hotbed well, for black Pennsylvania. Baseball. Pennsylvania was mm-hmm. a hotbed because not only that uh, 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 they established. Um, Baseball in, in, in Philadelphia, but in Darby, Pennsylvania, Ed Bolden was there, and he was one of the people that started. But 1904, after after Rube uh, pitched for not only the Chicago Union Giants, he pitched for the Cuban ex-Giants, he joined uh, the Philadelphia Giants in 1904. So I'll let my brother tell you a little bit about that. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, uh, this is actually with the part where we pick up a little bit more on Saul White. Right. Uh, well, this is when the time when Rube Foster uh, joined the Philadelphia Giants. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a little history about the Philadelphia Giants. They were mm-hmm. one of the uh, premier African-American baseball, the first premier African-American baseball team of the 20th century. And uh, the team was formed and owned in 1902 by uh, Walter H. Schechter, uh, uh, who was a sports writer and Hall of Fame infielder King Solomon Saul White Um, I don't want to go into total detail about uh, Saul White but um, because that's for another episode but he was one of the first to write about the African he wrote the first documented history on the African American athlete entitled The History of Colored Baseball Um, that was around 1902 I believe Mm -hmm. And also another key figure who uh, was part of the ownership of the Philadelphia Giants was Harry Smith, 
who was a sports editor of the Philadelphia Tribune, which was the city's African-American newspaper, Philadelphia's African-American newspaper. Um, uh, H. Walter Schechter arranged mm -hmm. for the team to play their home games in Columbus Park, which was actually the home field of the Philadelphia Athletics, of course, mm -hmm. who uh, was managed by Connie Mack. Uh, and it was located on 29th Street and Columbia Avenue in the North Philadelphia section. Uh, when the Athletics played their road games, the Philadelphia Giants were able to play their uh, home and games there. I just want to jump in for a second. I mean, this is an actual pattern that we'll see throughout. As mm -hmm. we get further on into the story of, uh, of black baseball, this was a, a business arrangement that mm -hmm. you saw in many major league, in white major league cities with the uh you know the the, the local black teams as well exactly. um, they played in these major leagues same and they got big crowds to come out too well exactly. well i mean and not that to cut you off but but you being from washington yeah, yeah absolutely know, uh, about the grays and the senators absolutely right. and uh, in fact there's a whole book on that mm -hmm. um god what is that called oh it's a it's it's a really fabulous book i'm gonna have to look this up mm -hmm. and uh while you're talking, <laughs> or if I can get my internet connection, because there's a great book that's all about the connection between uh, the Homestead Grades and mm -hmm. Washington Senators, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the family that owned the Washington Senators. The Clark Griffiths. Yes, the Griffiths. Mm -hmm. uh, and even as a kid, I remember, because I grew up on Harvard Street in Washington, mm -hmm, D.C., right. very near Griffiths, Griffiths mm -hmm. uh, Stadium. Uh, which is the, actually where Howard University Hospital mm -hmm. is right mm -hmm. now. Correct. And actually, as a as a Cub Scout, uh, in the annual Cub Scout parade <laughs> in, in D.C. every year, you D.C. residents will know what I mean. When I was a kid, the uh, school patrol, we used to have a... Have a um, we were part of the parade and we'd build a float, and we pushed that thing, which was a big locomotive, <laughs> onto the warning track around Griffith Stadium. I never went to see a game, uh -huh. but I, I, I was on the warning track of Griffith Stadium, I can't even remember when this was. Must have been. This must have been in uh, the early '60s, sometime, okay. or maybe the late '50s. Something, okay. you know. Anyway, when was, too much when, about me. Uh, <laughs> going on, when when was Griffin Stadium demolished to make way for the hospital? It wasn't until wasn't until the '70s. Yeah, wasn't yeah. until the '70s. Yeah, was, you know, right before we yeah. moved down there. Oh, yeah, it had to be '69. But the Harmon Killebrew Washington Senators yeah. left DC right. in '59 or '60. I think it was later. Yeah, that, no, no, like no, that. because they went to Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, they, they left they D.C. for Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't get the new, the Bob Short until, Washington Senators until, until they, 1962. Yeah, and then they built the RFK right after that. After right, right, that, right. yeah, okay. absolutely. So this is a sort of random history <laughs> <laughs> of Washington, yeah, D.C. Washington baseball. Okay. So I cut you off, but go, well, go, go right, please go right back. Well, in the team's first season with Saul White along with... Rube Foster uh, were made up of this team. Saul White played shortstop in addition to managing the team also. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of uh, known players also on this team. Uh, one, in one in particular was uh, Hall of Fame second baseman Frank Grant. Frank Grant mm -hmm. just got into the Hall of Fame around 2006. Cool. Mm -hmm. uh, catcher Clarence Williams and pitcher John Nelson. So um, a little history about the 1902 season. Um, they had a record of 81 wins, uh, 43 losses, and two ties. Um, they were unable to play the Cuban ex-Giants for the newly formed Negro League Championship after uh, issues, uh, several challenging issues. But um, they did play the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, which is remarkable, yeah, uh, no. who were the American mm -hmm. League champion at the time in a two-game exhibition. Um, the Athletics, of course, won both of those games, 
Uh, one was by the score of eight to three, and the other one was a score of 13 to four. So um, in 1903, Saul White signed pitcher, outfielder, Harry Green River Buckner, uh, third baseman and catcher, William Binga, uh, catcher, Robert Fortas, uh, shortstop, second baseman, third baseman, William Bill Monroe, uh, second baseman, left fielder, John W. Patterson. And after they were defeated in the Colored World Series by the Cuban ex-Giants, Ruth Foster, with Ruth Foster pitching, he joined the Philadelphia Giants the following season. So in the 1904 season, in addition to uh, uh, Ruth Foster, they had Hall of Fame outfielder Peter uh, Hill, who was inducted in 2006 into the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, Charles Charlie Grant, uh, who was an Indian, of course, uh, who played sure. second base, uh, Grant Holman Johnson, uh, who incidentally formed the Page Fence Johnson and wrote the, uh, in Saul White's book, The Art and Science of Hitting. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, uh, Hall of Famer shortstop John Henry Lloyd was on this team as well. Uh, Mike Moore, who was a center fielder in 1905, and catcher Bruce Petway in 1907. Spot Will Pose, who was an outfielder in 1909. And Cannonball Dick Redding, who a lot of baseball historians know about because of his pitching exploits. Cool. In 1911, and I just, I just want to jump in and mention that you know the the, the names that you'd hear are some of the most bel- well known names in in uh, African American the history of African American baseball. I mean, right. uh, 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 Pop John Henry Lloyd. I mean, these are really really some of the most stellar names exactly. in the game. So yes, yeah, so go on. Okay, so uh, the Philadelphia Giants uh, actually moved to the Columbia Park in 1904 to a new home field located on Broad Street, if everybody knows where Broad Street is, if you're a Philadelphian, and Jackson Avenue. Um, and the Colored World Series that season, the Philadelphia Giants defeated the Cuban ex-Giants in a three-game series, two games to one. And that season, uh, Ruth Foster was 20, had a record of 20 wins and six losses, uh, incidentally with two no-hitters. Uh, and he won two games in the Color World Series while batting uh, 400. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Francis, who's going to talk about uh, Ruth Force's uh, latter pitching career as well. Well, he, he at about 1906, um, he was instrumental. Well, the Philadelphia Giants were instrumental mm-hmm. in the forming of the International League of uh, Independent Professional Ballplayers. And this league was comprised of um, all black and all white teams in the Philadelphia and uh, Wilmington, Delaware area. And uh, the Giants finished with a 108 and um, 31 and 6 record. And uh, by this time, it was, um, Ruth Forster was um, upset with what he was getting from. <laughs> they they call it professional baseball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he was getting from the Philadelphia Giants uh, team executives. So, um, even though uh, I, I think it's 1907 is when he had, um, um, when Saul Wright had uh, um, published the official baseball guide, uh, the history of um, colored baseball, and it's interested, interesting to note that it was edited by H. Walter Schechter, and Ruth Foster had written uh, an essay in there talking about how to pitch, but he, uh, that fall, he left. Um, uh, the Philadelphia Giants. Frank Leland uh, used his influence to bring him back to Chicago. And uh, I think it was uh, David Wyatt who had um, 
been a pitcher early by baseball, but uh, he was a sports writer for the Chicago Defender, the black newspaper, and then the Indianapolis uh, Freeman. And uh, that's how Leland got, um, even though Leland knew uh, Rube Forster, he got Dave Wyatt to persuade uh, Forster to come back. And then that's when um, Frank Leland, had, Frank Leland had lost the name Chicago mm -hmm. Union Giants. And, and so he started a whole new ball club. Um, it was basically, you know, mm -hmm. the Chicago Union Giants, but now he called it the Leland Giants. So I guess he respected uh, Rube so much that he offered Rube a player-manager position with the club. And that started a, a, a whole era of the Leland Giants being one of the uh, top teams in black baseball at that time. And, you know, um, Rube Foster was able to get a lot of his teammates from the um, Philadelphia Giants to join him. Uh, people like Grant Home, Ron Johnson, and Pete Hill, and uh, catcher um, Pete Booker and Bill Monroe and just a whole slew of the former players mm -hmm. uh, came with him and um, they played their home games on the south side of Chicago which was uh, it still probably is now was a, a, a African American community mm -hmm. and they played at a place called Auburn Ballpark which is on 79th Street and Winworth Avenue and uh, you know what I find interesting, if I could just jump in for a second, mm -hmm. is that part of the league, Cap Anson had a team, a team yeah. who's n n notorious in the history well, the of baseball. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I have a funny uh, a mixture. I, first of all, there's a picture in the pictorial history of Rube Foster with Cap Anson. And I have a, a mixed emotion with Cap, Cap Anson because Saul White always has written articles and, and newspapers later on. They said, you know, don't blame uh, the uh, uh, well because Moses Whitwell Walker was the last uh, African American to play mm -hmm. Major League Baseball, and until Jackie Robinson came along, mm -hmm. and because uh, black players were banned by were the banned. National Association yeah, of Baseball yeah, Players yeah. sometime in the 19th century, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, no, ATA, yeah. So, so, but, but, someone has a, 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 a to note. He says. You cannot blame Cap Anson for the banning of African American players. Mm -hmm. One man can't do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know. And he said it, it's it's unfair. It, Cap and also Cap Anson was a notorious racist while he played. But when he had teams that bossed them, they played against black teams. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So because he most most famously, and there's even a book entitled this, yeah. Get That Nigga Off the Field, yeah. mm -hmm. that he was the, to supposedly have said this. Yeah. Right. Um, and though I don't forget the exact uh, well, I think instance Rose, situation. Jr. Wrote that yeah, book. is that the book I'm talking about? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But I mean, and, I, and I'm inclined to believe that. I mean, I believe mm -hmm. Cap Anson, well, well, he was notorious as a player, mm -hmm. you know, to be a racist, but I don't think you can say from eight, 1889 sure. to 1947 <laughs> yeah. that Cap Hansen is responsible sure. for, you know, keeping black players all that particular time for, sure. for close to 40 or 50 years. Sure. You know. <laughs> but he, and I guess I mean, in some ways he's become the sim well, symbol yeah, of, course. of what is of a sy basically systematic white well, supremacy. It, 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 right. it, yeah. it, you can say the same. 
the same thing about Eddie Stanky. Sure. I mean, Eddie Stanky mm-hmm. played for the Dodgers, mm-hmm. and yeah, Eddie Stanky, and he was notorious. And he was notorious, and he didn't yeah. want Jackie Robinson. I mean, yeah. it's the famous uh, 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 spring training thing where uh, Tom Leo DeRosha called Eddie Stanky and a couple of people down to the kitchen of the hotel, saying this guy is going to play, and he's not he only not going to only be this guy. He's talking yeah. about Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of these guys <laughs> coming. Yeah, you know, and so whether for your not, job. yeah, so whether <laughs> not you have. Have this opinion yeah. about this that he's not going to be the only guy. There's going to be other sure. guys coming after him, you know. So I mean, I think that in order for something like that, you have to have the owners. I mean, John sure. McCall wanted to. You know, I mean, you know, my brother was talking about uh, Charles Grant, mm-hmm. and you know, Charles Grant wasn't an Indian, but what happened was they to get they mm-hmm. tried to say he was Indian. He wasn't black. To try to get him, he wanted to sign sure. Charles. Uh, he wanted to sign Charlie Grant, Charles, John McGraw, to play with the Giants. So that's what he said. This is guys in black. He's an Indian. Sure. Right? You know. So yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, some of that had to do with even this name of the Cuban. Although certainly, yes. you know, a lot of these teams were named after. Uh, were, were named in honor of the, the Giants because they were so popular. Yeah. Right. But, you know, uh, Cuban kind of became the sort of disguises beard that they weren't black. Yeah. That, yeah. They, you know, if they were from the Caribbean, yeah. then like they like were, weren't black. Yeah. You know? yeah, and so you I could mean, sidestep, yeah. you know. Uh, so, yeah. So this is what American racism does yeah. to people. They can yeah. rationalize you know, the, yeah, they're not black. The they're most human. awful things they yeah. can rationalize. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what we're what we're really outlining here is just kind of the landscape of, of American baseball mm-hmm. and black baseball's impact on it mm-hmm. as we head into the 1920s, mm-hmm. when there's going to be a complete revolution in in uh, black people playing baseball mm-hmm. based around Rube Foster and yes. his vision uh, as an owner, as a an executive. And as a tactician and and as a coach, yeah, I mean, yeah, as a uh, so we've got a lot more coming up mm-hmm. about uh, really the father of black baseball mm-hmm. uh, and his impact on the game. Everything from how it's played mm-hmm. to the business side of it. Right. Uh, and and this is more the period I think that most casual fans understand and mm-hmm. know about African baseball. We're talking about teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, mm-hmm. the Chicago American Giants that that Rube Foster started. The Homestead Grays mm-hmm. that we were talking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I believe there, what was there, seven or eight teams that that generally are considered, you know, the Newark uh, Eagles mm-hmm. That's right. that are kind of considered uh, the Detroit Stars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Detroit, Detroit Stars. Baltimore League Giants. Giants. Yes, 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 yes. And of course the Black Yankees. Yes, yes. yes. So we're going to be talking about uh, the, the, the launch of the Negro National League the, a bigger, uh, much more about Saul White mm-hmm. and his historic contributions, and a whole lot of other things uh, in our next episode mm-hmm. about uh, at, um, the Negro Leagues and the rise of, of black baseball in this country. So don't forget to tune in again. Thanks again to my co-host, uh, the Thank Brothers you. Harris. Thank and you. we'll see you on the next episode of, uh, of Sierra Athletics, Sierra Media Athletics Podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got it.